Okay, there we go. So I have not been able to give you every jot and tittle of the scriptures, if we're going to use a biblical term, concerning the biblical story. But I pray that I have stimulated many of you to search the scriptures, read through the scriptures with new insight, with new things to think about as we start from Genesis to Revelation. The story of God's redemption of Israel and how the Gentiles came to share in that hope is truly an amazing story. And it's one that helps us understand where we stand in covenant, in relationship with God today. We started out this series in the beginning where we discussed the creation story as an allegorical story utilizing physical but metaphoric language to illustrate the covenant God was making with Israel. I offered this to you as a consistent view of the biblical beginning and the biblical end. Both, we know, dealing with God's covenant people, heaven and earth, in scripture. In your bulletins this morning, you will find some of those passages in which you see, will see heaven and earth used in covenantal terms. And if you notice, that's on the back of your bulletins this morning. There's some notes. I spoke to you all about a blog that I had written dealing with the book The Lost World of Genesis 1 by John Walton, in which he demonstrates the fact that for the Israelites, Genesis 1 offers explanations of their views of origins and operations in the same way that mythology served in the rest of the ancient world and how science serves our Western culture. It represents what Israelites truly believed about how it works. Though it's not presented as their own ideas, it's presented as revelations from God. These were revelations from God of Israel because he was explaining his covenant and their beginnings, his covenant with them, because God was dealing with Israel only throughout the Bible. In Psalms 147, verses 19 through 20, we read, He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel, He has not dealt thus with any other nation, and for his ordinances, they have not known them. In Romans chapter 9, the apostle makes it very clear to whom the law and promises were primarily made to, when he says, For I wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is Christ according to the flesh? The creation account was not some transcendent story explaining to mankind how God created the physical universe. Instead, it was explaining covenantal beginnings. Let me use John Walton's words to make something clear. Viewing Genesis 1 as an account of functional origins, as the covenantal beginnings, does not in any way suggest or imply that God was uninvolved in material origins. It only contends that Genesis 1 is not that story. To the author and audience of Genesis 1, material origins simply were not a priority. The reason being, all ancient cultures would have attributed their deity as the creator of the universe. There would have been no argument there that God created the universe, that God created all things. That's pretty much common sense to an ancient culture. In your bulletin this morning, you also find a website link to the blog I wrote dealing with this topic directly. After the creation of God's covenant relationship with Israel, we then discuss the broken covenant. What, you know, what is known as the fall, the hows and whys of the fall in the garden, and how they are directly illustrated of the story of Israel breaking their covenant with God and how they violated the law of Moses. The law of sin and death was given by God as a temporary school teacher to Israel. It would be an illustration of sin and how they were all guilty of sin. It was ultimately to show that man could not be in relationship with God by himself, on his own terms, or what we would call self-righteousness. Sin is a trespass against the law, the rules that God clearly gave to Israel. And breaking of the law led to death. If you read 613 rules, 
you will see why there's truth in the statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all who are under the law, Israel, as the context shows, Israel received the law, no other nation. All of Israel were declared dead by the law. I would add that those outside of the covenant relationship with God, the Gentiles, were dead as well because they were not in covenant relationship with God. They had no opportunity to have covenant relationship with God, the life of being in relationship with God. The prophets longed for a time when the people of Israel would be revived or resurrected or restored. And how exactly this would happen was a mystery. Isaiah speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. Jeremiah explains what the new covenant will be. And Ezekiel speaks of the resurrection of the dead bones of Israel. And that's just mentioning some of the prophets. There's a whole host of prophets to read through. Obviously, we're up to Ezekiel and I'm having a hard time getting there. The coming of the Messiah was to bring about the consolation of Israel. We read about this in Luke. A light to the Gentiles and a glory of his people. Understanding the world or the cosmos that God so loved and to whom Christ came is vital to the context of the story. In Galatians, we read that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. The question is, who were under the law? Israel. Yes, Jesus Christ came to the covenant world of Israel. As it says in Romans 15, that he became a servant to the circumcision to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Again, whose fathers? Whose fathers are we following through the Old Testament? Israel's. And when he confirmed these promises, then the Gentiles would therefore glorify God for his mercy. That's what we read in Romans chapter 15. So God is dealing directly with Israel. He's going to confirm their promises. And by confirming their promises, the Gentiles, those people out there, so to speak, would come to share in the blessings that God had promised to Israel. This is how the mystery was being revealed in the first century. This is exactly what the prophets longed to see. In Luke chapter 10, we read the words of Jesus to his first century disciples. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them and hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. The Apostle Paul tells us his insight into these things in the books of, book of Ephesians, which is a perfect uh, time for a quick uh, side note. We will be doing the book of Ephesians contextually for the next series. So please join us for that. So in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul details the mystery of Christ. He says, which was not made known in other generations to the sons of men, as it is now in the first century, being made known to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God. Specifically, this was that the Gentiles who were previously excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, who were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and no God, through Christ they would become fellow members of the body and partakers of the promise. What a glorious message that the church is called to make known. You're welcome. You're welcome in through Christ. That's what we're telling the world now, and that's what the first century Jewish people were telling the Gentile people. That's what Paul was sent to do. You're welcome. Come in through Christ. The manifold wisdom of God. I think it's fair to say that Jesus is the manifold wisdom of God. When we properly understand the context of the biblical good news, in contrast to a bunch of religious cliches that you can hear in some sermons, we're better able to grasp the importance of other areas of Scripture. For example, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. We're going to read verses 17 through 20.
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm sorry, also it's on page 961 in the Pew Bible. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here we're reading how Jesus is taking the law from being external. We're reading the introduction into Jesus taking the law from being an external bunch of rules, do's and don'ts, and he's going to make them a matter of the heart. He makes it a little bit more complicated. If you notice in verse 18 through 20, not the smallest jot or tittle will be taken from the law. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 11, it says, do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. You know, do not wear mixed fibers. Do not plant seeds together. We'd have a lot of problems in our culture if we were going to follow every jot and tittle of the 613 laws that are in the Old Testament. Until heaven and earth pass away. Well, this will not pass away. These laws, 613 biblical laws, will not pass away if anyone teaches anybody to violate even the least of these, he will be called least in the kingdom of God. Well, that leaves many of us in trouble, doesn't it now? I guess most of us probably will be least of these in the kingdom of heaven if that was true or if that was not understood in its context. Would you invite a friend to, a friend to eat at Red Lobster? Okay, then you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Or how about telling Pastor Mike to clean up his beard? You know, shaving the side of your, that's a law. It's a biblical law. So if you told me that, you'd be violating one of the ancient laws of Israel, and therefore uh, you'd be called least of these in the kingdom of heaven? Okay. Well, a proper understanding of heaven and earth and how the first century Jewish audience would understood that term is vital here. Also, understand what was occurring in the first century. What was becoming obsolete? What was coming under judgment? And what was being established? A good read through the book of Hebrews would show this to be the old covenant with its laws, its regulations, its rules, the self-righteousness of the law was vanishing. And a new covenant of grace, truth, peace, love, the righteousness of Christ was being revealed, was coming into play. This would be the righteousness that would surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. Something we can never achieve on our own by following the law. It says, he said that you must have a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness of Christ revealed by grace would be that righteousness. Thank God. Allow his sacrifice, his teachings, to be our righteousness. The passing away of the law, when every jot and tittle was fulfilled, was breaking down the barrier, the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile that we see in Ephesians chapter 3. That's what Christ came to do. Destroy the works of the devil, sin and death. Break down the barrier that's keeping the Jew and the Gentile and create a peace between the two. That's the manifold wisdom of God that we are called to reveal. And we are called to tell the world, to tell the nations. Last week we discussed the importance of the time factor, or what we call time statements. We read before that Jesus came at the fullness of time. In Hebrews we read that he came at the end of the age, or some might erroneously translate the end of the world. 
Jesus came at the end of the world. Something some people have to deal with. These are important factors that many seem to miss. Soon, at hand, ready to be revealed. Time statements. When we understand these time statements, we can understand the, where we are today, what we're dealing with today. Many Christians are still waiting for more to occur when, in fact, the reality has already been established. Last week, I expressed my dismay at the fact of how many Christians failed to understand the importance of or even know about the events of AD 70. Pretty odd when you read Luke chapter 21, which says, But when you, Jesus speaking to his first century disciples, see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. I found this quote this week by Philip Morrow, a lawyer and author in the early 1900s. It is greatly to be regretted that those who in our day give themselves to the study and exposition of prophecy seem not to be aware of the immense significance of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 which was accompanied by the extinction of the Jewish national existence and the dispersion of the Jewish people among all the nations. The failure to recognize the significance of that event and the vast amount of prophecy which is fulfilled has been the cause of great confusion. For the necessary consequence of missing the past fulfillment of predicted events is to leave on our hands a mass of prophecies which we must need contrive fulfillments in the future. The harmful results are twofold. For first, we are deprived of the evidential value and this, the support of the faith of those remarkable fulfillments of prophecy which are so clearly presented to us in authentic contemporary histories. And second, our vision of things to come is greatly obscured and confused by the transference of future, to the future of predicted event, events which in fact have already happened and wherefore complete records have been preserved for us of that information. So there we have it. The harmful results of not understanding the contextual story and fulfillment that occurred in A.D. 70. The deprivation of evidential value of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy and our vision is obscured, looking into the future for things which happened in the past. A couple years back in a popular church in Fort Myers, Florida, there was an erroneous teaching that was being taught dealing with futurism and a series called After Tomorrow. To help stir up some holy controversy, I took to YouTube and created a video series called Consider Yesterday. You know, you're looking after tomorrow. I'm telling you to look backwards. Consider yesterday. Consider the past. You can also look this up on YouTube as the Consider Yesterday series. Last week, Michelle had asked about Revelation. And I mentioned I'm currently listening to a series by Scott, Dr. Scott Hahn called The End, in which he says this, that we have a superficial treatment of Revelation. We automatically put ourselves in the text without rolling up our sleeves and actually paying attention to what the text is talking about. Who is it speaking to? What is the direct audience of Revelation? And what did it mean for them? He says this, The gospel is a covenantal gospel which reveals the fulfillment of a covenant promise. But when gospel eschatology, eschatology being study of the last days or the end things, is abstracted from its covenantal frame of reference, any eschatological interpretation of man's choosing can be put in it. And that's why we have a host of false teachings about the end times, million different views, everything from the rapture to the millennium to all these different things that just seem so confusing. And the only thing we know how to say is, but what about the book of Revelation? And no pastor wants to preach about the book of Revelation. It's a nightmare. Fear not. Fear not. 
so we here at Blue Point Bible Church are actually soon going to be launching an outreach evangelism thing to deal with revelation, to deal with these last things, to deal with trying to make sense of this whole thing. Because we're not afraid to deal with the Bible, because we are a Bible church. Advancing in this understanding, which is clearly happening all over the world, churches, classrooms, living rooms, seminaries, are coming to realize what AD 70 means for the church, for means for Bible prophecy. But it's bringing us up against contradictions of creeds and traditions of the quote-unquote historic church. As this proper understanding of scriptures grows, it's come to be known as fulfilled Bible prophecy, covenant eschatology, full preterism, and so forth. These are all being labeled heretical. Scary thought. The common objection is that full preterism takes away your hope. My question is, what are you hoping for? What is your hope? Are you hoping for an inconsistent end time when Jesus floats out of the sky, gives you a new physical body, because you're not happy with the body you have, I guess, and uh, you know, brings you to this mythical fantasy place called heaven, and uh, this place is going to take away all your woes and all your, you know, your sorrows of this world? If that's your hope, well, let's set up a meeting so I could help you uh, understand the truth of the kingdom of God. As you have hopefully seen throughout this series, when we understand the consistent story of the scriptures... It will demolish many of your preconceived notions, the things you so cherish. I'm sure most of us here have dealt with that. But this in no way, shape, or form takes away your hope. Instead, what should occur is the removal of this hope that you've made up and you're trying to propagate as true and should be replaced with the hope of the scriptures, the biblical hope, the hope of Israel, the fulfilled hope of Israel at that, and the incorporation of Gentiles into a sacrificial free covenant with God. We don't have to follow 613 laws to think that we're pleasing God. Notice I said think that we're pleasing God. God desires mercy, not sacrifice, right? So I remind you all the question I asked last week. I know Vicky was waiting for this question. How does the contextual story of Scripture benefit us today? What does this mean for the 21st century world? Many Christians settle for cliches on what this means for us today. As I explained last week, that a large majority of the sermons that you will hear from many pulpits, and I I do attend other churches and listen. Uh, This week I was at and I visited another church. And uh, they're riddled with, Jesus died for our sins, repent and be saved, God loves you. And while these things are true, they don't exactly help the listener understand what the gospel is and what it means to them today. Just sounds like a bunch of religious cliches that sound great. Try telling that to the average person walking on Main Street. We, we tend to make the gospel unreasonable. And it just seems like, okay, you believe in that stuff, that nonsense. As we better understand our Bibles and the contextual story, it enables us to become apologetics for the faith. An apologetic is somebody that defends the faith, that stands up for the faith, can explain the faith to the person that needs it to be explained to. If the church is called to make known the manifold wisdom of God, I think it's fair to say we must know what we're talking about. And as 1 Peter 3.15 reads, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, something I'm working on, gentleness and reverence. Especially when we see the rise of false teachings, especially in matters of end times, these teachings that are causing fear, anxiety, confusion, and a host of other reactions, moving to the mountains, setting up fortresses, stocking up for Armageddon, 
I think it's time the church actually has something to say. Are we ready to present the world biblical truth? Or are we just going to kind of sit back and let the religious cliches lead the day? Because, you know, everybody's happy holding up a sign that God loves you. Vernon Klingerman said, Preterism is the only view of eschatology that will stand the test of time. I tend to agree. I think that was a pun there. Stand the test of time. As we allow audience relevance, audience relevance being that which the original audience would have understood these things to be. You know, they were actually real people standing in front of Jesus when he was talking. What would they have thought of this? What would they have thought of his teachings? Not the 21st century mind that has globalism as our, you know, we, we look at the world so globally. I, I always look back and I'm like, the first century audience didn't have TV to know what was going on in China. They had to look at the world through their lens. We have, we have to look at the world through their lens. And then time statements. Those which give us insight into when something would occur. The whole story becomes clear when we use these two things. Audience relevance and time statements. For example, I discussed Matthew chapter 5 before. When we understand heaven and earth as the original audience would have understood it, not 21st century global-minded people, we learn of heaven and earth as a covenantal term that applies to covenantal people and included the law, the temple, and the physical lineage of Israel. So when the old heaven and old earth passed away, the new would come. There would be no sea, no death, no law in this new heaven and new earth. This new would be a new people and a new covenant, just as the old was an old covenant and an old people. A physical lineage turning into a spiritual lineage. A physical law, a law that had 613 rules and regulations, into a spiritual law, taking it right to the heart. You know, one of the things that always comes up is... Uh, Jesus says, the man that looks at a woman with lust in his eyes or looks at a man's wife with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery. That's, he's taking it to the heart of the matter rather than saying, oh, you know, if you commit adultery, this is what will happen. He's taking it to the heart of the matter. And you go through all of Matthew 5 and you look at that Sermon on the Mount and you see Jesus is taking it, making it much more complicated but much more spiritual. So in the first century, Jesus was specifically saying that the old would not pass away until it was completely fulfilled. Matthew chapter 5. All of it must be fulfilled, and we know this happened in AD 70. Every jot and every tittle. When the righteousness of Christ was completely fulfilled and established. Failure to understand this brings us under a yoke of bondage. How many times do you hear people judge Christians, whether it's Christians themselves or people outside the faith, who bring up rules and regulations as a determining factor of what a Christian is? I'm guilty. I'm sure most of us are guilty at some point in time. We do that. I'm sick of this. Quite frankly, I'm just, I, I, that's it. I'm just sick and tired of hearing how rules and regulations define who I am as a Christian instead of the grace of God, instead of understanding the biblical story, instead of what it means to be incorporated into the hope of Israel. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the grace of God. We are a sovereign grace church. We believe it's by the grace of God that we have the opportunity to participate in covenant relationship with God. Comedic author A.J. Jacobs wrote a book of the year of living biblically in which he humorously sought to follow a large majority of the biblical laws. And he has one where he comes up against, you must stone adulterers. So he goes into New York City, into Central Park, and he's kind of debating with himself, how am I going to do this? And he starts picking up pebbles, and he's sitting next to a man who starts to kind of tell him all his, uh, I guess his baggage. I, I guess that's what happens in Central Park. 
And uh, he starts to tell him all his baggage and pretty much leads into like this man's an adulterer. So A.J. Jacobs takes the stones and starts throwing them at his shoe. And this results in like a little fight, like a little argument. And uh, the guy, you know, kind of gets on him and he's asked why he's dressed a certain way. Because remember, he's trying to follow all the biblical laws. So he's got like a huge beard. He's dressed a certain way. got tassels hanging down. And you would picture him walking around in Central Park. So I think that he, he illustrated great in that book what it would be like to follow all these laws. And kind of how ridiculous it would be to try to hold to that in our 21st century culture. Shane Claiborne co-authored a book, Jesus for President, in which he wrote an article dealing with the hypocrisy of Christians and the law. Are we under every jot or tittle, jot and tittle or not? This is something many Christians must come to terms with. We're either under every jot and tittle of the law or we're not. I have no desire to come under a legal system of law. Instead, I enjoy a sacrifice-free grace by the righteousness of Christ. I'm notorious for saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not your own. One who defends the faith is called an apologetic, as we just said, right? The rise of the information age, coupled with so much nonsense, stuff that doesn't make, doesn't make much sense. There's a lot of nonsense out there. Think about it. We're, our society is getting a lot smarter, and it seems like another part of our society is getting a lot stupider. We are in dire need. Us Christians are in dire need of apologetics. Because in the church, that, that rise is happening in both ends as well. Understanding the comprehensive story of Scripture allows us to present what I call a true and reasonable gospel. A presentation of the Christian faith where atheism does not stand a chance. A faith that is so sure we can dare to analyze and debate other religions and show them why we are Christians and what our faith means. Stand up against the rise of the information age and a generation of so-called intellectuals who want to find answers in the Christian faith, who want something, but they need it to be true and reasonable. And we can show how the Bible and science do not contradict. And we have no need to come up with ridiculous conspiracy theories about how science has an agenda against Christianity. The choice is ours. As Tim Martin once noted, which will stand the test of time? A Christianity that boldly proclaims its own self-refutation or a Christianity that provides an intellectually satisfying view of all things from Genesis to Revelation? Gary DeMar, a popular Bible teacher, said, challenging those who appeal to history to make their cases valid, investigative, and apologetic approach. Paul didn't condemn the Bereans when they wanted to check his claims against the text of Scripture. Ad fontes, to the fountain, that is, to the sources, should be the Christian's constant rally cry. I think we all would agree here. Bible church again, right? To the Scriptures, to the Word, to the Bible. Let's go. Challenging those is what we are called to do. Prove all things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Prove all things. Examine everything carefully. Allowing the scriptures to be true and everything else under suspicion puts us at an awesome advantage. So why do many fail to appeal to the scriptures? Why do we constantly want to go back to tradition or what we think or what we know or what we've been taught? Those who know me know my mantra of possessing a zeal empowered by knowledge. Or as a Facebook friend of mine Recently noted, knowledge is power. Vicky told me the same thing last week. In Romans chapter 10, we read how those who persecuted Christ and his followers had a zeal for God, but they did not have knowledge of God. Their lack of knowledge allowed them to falsely believe that they were right. 
That should scare a generation of Christians who have little biblical knowledge, little knowledge of the things outside, outside of popular crochets and piecemealed scripture. That should be scary to all of us. We have a generation of people that have a zeal but no knowledge. And the last, well, not the last time, I mean, it's been happening for generation after generation. But we know that in the first century when that occurred, they killed Christ, killed the followers of Jesus. Not only is it important to have a zeal that's based on a true and reasonable message, it is also the worship that God desires. In John chapter 4, we read, God desires worshipers in spirit and in truth. Can you boldly say that you are worshiping God in spirit and in truth in your life? The constant pursuit of spirit and truth, is that the quest that we're all on? Because that's what we're all called to. Continually walk in worship. Because if we say we're always going to worship God, we're continually walking in an attitude of worship. Are we continually walking in an attitude of worship in spirit and in truth? Or kind of just what we've been taught? Are we really saying, is this true? Because I'll tell you what, I do that every day. Is this true? I'm, the, you know, I'm like the quote-unquote devil's advocate in my own life. Like, is this true? Does this really make sense? Am I believing the truth? I'll drive in the car sometimes and just be thinking about that. Is this the truth? Can I explain this to somebody? And then that's why sometimes I just love dealing with people. You know, all you guys know I love to meet random people, meet new people, because I love sharpening myself. I love seeing, is this true? Does this make sense? I believe the blessing of being alive at this time, being involved in a community like Blue Point Bible Church, and much of the preterist movement out there allows for us to live with the conviction that we are truly seeking after God, that revival and reformation is on its way. Our worldview shifts from some other place, somewhere else, to we're in the reality of the kingdom right now. Also, it's very popular for people to want a new experience of God. I heard this this week constantly, a new experience. I want more. I want something new. We're experiencing something new. More of his presence, which they erroneously believe, I guess, is found in the future somewhere. More of his presence. More of God. I say no. No. The news already been established, and you can have more by studying the scriptures, getting to know the comprehensive story, getting to know where you stand with God. Let us help people establish a grounded knowledge of God in contrast to a bunch of fantasy hopes of heaven, fears of hell, subjective thoughts of being in dating relationships with Jesus. Yes, I've heard that. I'm dating Jesus. Understanding the comprehensive story of Scripture and how it was fulfilled in the past allows us to demolish a long-standing tradition of waiting for the future, which has led to current Christian missions not being geared for long-term results. We talked about that Wednesday night about the the difference between this futurist version of Christianity and this preterist version of Christianity. Looking into the future fulfillment, looking into the past for fulfillment. What's the danger? What's the difference? Well, I'll tell you what. If everything's going to be cut short soon, there's no reason to really worry about long-term results. And that's pretty much where Christianity is headed. We have all these short-term results. Talk to any missionary in any country, and they'll tell you. They're geared for short-term results. Quick evangelism. Give them this four-point gospel message. Get them saved. Get them ready to go to heaven. It's scary for a kingdom of God that's supposed to continue for eternity on earth. Let us move beyond a shallow message, a shallow presentation of the gospel, and begin to comprehensively teach the scriptures, what they call the chronological approach to scripture, from beginning to end. 
And let's start pondering long-term strategies for how the kingdom of God is going to heal the nations. Right? The spiritual implications of the biblical story start with his righteousness. It's no longer a physical lineage experience. Instead, even the Gentiles have been welcomed into the body through Christ. The hope of Israel was to see Israel restored. And how did God do this? Through the Spirit, by fulfilling biblical prophecy, rendering obsolete the old covenant, bringing in the Gentiles, and we call this experience the kingdom of God. Sadly, many Christians are waiting to go to some other place to experience this kingdom of God instead of experiencing it right here, right now. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming with observation, that it is within. We read in John chapter 3 that a man must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. This is a spiritual rebirth, birth into the kingdom that is not of this world, an experience that is not of this world, a peace that is not of this world, as we say, a peace that surpasses all understanding. In Revelation chapter 21, we read about the new heavens and new earth. Again, sadly, many Christians are erroneously looking in the future for this instead of seeing the reality today in their life, where there will be no more thirst because you'll have access to the water of life. You'll have access to the tree of life. You'll have eternal life. There'll be no more death because Christ is life, and we have him, and he has done away with death when we've put him on. We've entered into this gate. There's no more mourning or crying for the old order of things has passed away, the old order being the old covenant, the laws of sin and death. That which brought sin into life. Without, we don't have the law because we have Christ. That's why people always say to me, in the new heavens and new earth, there'll be no more mourning or crying. The next part says, there, for the old order has passed away. You must know what the old order was in order to know what was passing away. And that's the problem. That's, that's the key of understanding the comprehensive story of Scripture. You get to know what the old order was first. And then you get to know what is passing away and what is coming in. There'll be the values of the new covenant, the new heavens and new earth. There will be no sacrifice. We don't need a sacrifice. We have Christ as our sacrifice. Christ is our Passover lamb, as the scriptures tell us. His righteousness, not our own. There's no legal system to declare us righteous or unrighteous. Christ is our righteousness. And we're not dead because we've been revived by Christ. We have life in Christ. I believe that Christianity is the pursuit of life to the full. John 10.10, Jesus said, I come not, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come to bring life and life to the full. It's been a constant uh, journey of mine to figure out what did he mean by those words. And I would imagine he meant that there is no, you know, you don't need a sacrifice. You don't, it's my righteousness, not your own. When you make a mistake, confess, and you will be restored. Because if you don't confess, I mean, just on a natural level, if you don't confess, you're going to continue to walk in sin, and you're going to continue to bear the fruit of sin. It's, you know, I don't get into the deeper conversations about that. It's just rather simple. Keep walking in sin and you will bear the fruits of sin. Walk in life, walk in righteousness, you will bear the fruits of life and righteousness. Seems rather simple. So my thing is, if you were to ask me today, what is the benefit of this today for us? I would tell you it's a zeal empowered by knowledge. It's the fact that I am walking with God, that I can have spiritual experiences with God because of what I know about being in covenant relationship with him. That's what I get from knowing the whole story. I get to know what this means for me, how I've been brought into this, and how this affects my worldview, the things that we're experiencing in this world, and how God works. So what do you think? Any questions? That's a real question, by the way. Any questions? No? All right, good. Well, then I'll end with this. Just as the Old Testament is not meaningless to us, 
because it's all been fulfilled. None of us here are saying that the Old Testament has not been fulfilled. I guess it depends who you talk to because some people would say that there are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that have not been fulfilled. But we don't have a problem with reading through Exodus, for example, and saying, oh yeah, it's all been fulfilled. Nobody's waiting for anything in Exodus to happen. We're reading a story. Is it meaningless? Does that mean it means nothing to us because it's all been fulfilled? No. So then why, when we get to the New Testament, if it's all been fulfilled, does that mean that it's meaningless? No, it's simply the same thing. You go to Exodus, you're reading a story of Israel. You go to the New Testament, guess what? You're reading the story of Israel again. It's the same thing. But now you're including the Gentile people into the Israel of God. Fulfillment of Bible prophecy and a consistent contextual understanding of the comprehensive story of Scripture is the foundation upon which our Christian faith stands. What has come to be known as preterism highlights the fact that God did what he said he would do when he said he would do it. We do not look to some future date of God's judgment. But just as God's judgment was present during the Old Covenant, it's just as much present today in the New Covenant. The Spirit of God is alive and well. So let the Spirit be your guide. Live in the kingdom of God. And as Tim Martin, an elder of the Covenant Community Church, said, kingdom living brings purpose and meaning to Christians and saves them from the destructive and empty life of self-centeredness so visible in a modern culture apart from God. Understood in its broadest sense, the victorious kingdom of God gives children who grow up something to live for. Preterism will unleash a new vitality in the modern church because it naturally suggests a kingdom focus for all of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for fulfilled Bible prophecy, Lord. Thank you for a comprehensive story that is true and reasonable, that we might come to glorify you, come to thank you, Lord God, for what you have done and what you are doing. Let us recognize that we are in the kingdom of God and how this has happened. That way we can best express it to a world that so desperately needs it, Lord. Let this message continue to be the healing of the nations. Let us work as agents in your kingdom, Lord, to bring forth your glory. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.